Hi, I'm Ellen Besner, and this is the CJN Daily, and it's actually episode three for the CJN Daily's Deadbeat, where we pay honorable mention to honorable mention Jewish Canadians who have died recently. So before we dive in, just an administrative note. The goal of the series is to honor and tell the stories of some of the greatest lights of our community, to celebrate their lives with all the joy and energy and good humor that they brought to the people around them. Now, the name of our show was a nod to covering a journalism beat, and it was meant to reflect that. But after lots of feedback, it seems the name still doesn't strike the right chord for many of you. So we're looking for suggestions, and we want your help. So please write us and give us some titles. You can get in touch with me at ebesner at thecjn.ca. And now on with the show. I'm joined by our CJN Obit writer, veteran journalist Ron Sillag. Hey, Ron, welcome back. Thank you, Ellen. Good to be back. It's good to be back with you. And we've lost some big names this month, as you may have already known, since you wrote some of those obituaries or heard in my in-depth podcast about some of them. It's been uh, uh, usually, you know, the summer doldrums. This wasn't one of them. Uh, like you could say death does not take a holiday. No, and, and it was uh, bad. Irving Abella passed away, as we know, uh, Holocaust educator and author Max Eisen died uh, Rabbi Dov Marmer, formerly of Holy Blossom Temple, died. Uh, Clay Ruby uh, died on uh, just recently, August 2nd. And so those are the big ones. There were others, too, and uh, we will get to all of them, I hope. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a, a lightning round at the end mm-hmm. for folks who, who recently died that uh, people can look up uh, online on our cjn.ca website. And the Canadian government response was... We regret that no country can open its doors wide enough to take in the hundreds and thousands of Jewish people who want to leave Germany. The line must be drawn somewhere. Permission to land refused. So we need to start off with, of course, Irving Abella, because uh, as one of the giants in Canadian Jewish life, Jewish history, uh, in both sectors of academia as well as uh, in politics, he was big, and his funeral was uh, at Beth Tzedek Synagogue. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with him. Well, I had a good relationship with him. He was always um, very approachable, very calm, a modest man. The only time he couldn't comment uh, on a story to me was, for some reason, he said he couldn't because uh, the case that I was talking about might come up before the Supreme Court, and of course, Rosalie Bella, his wife, was a justice of the Supreme Court. That would put him in a conflict. But he did give me a very good anonymous quote. So he, he, uh, he couldn't resist, I suppose. But um, there aren't, I guess you could say about him, there aren't too many historians, uh, Jewish historians, who become a household name in Canada. And he certainly was. He and Harold Troper, of course, wrote the, a very seminal book, None is Too Many, which has become, almost entered sort of the Jewish lexicon for shutting people out of the country. When it came out in 1982, it it really made a big splash. Uh, you know, splashes were made even before the internet, kids. So uh, both of them, the book absolutely shattered the myth of, of Canadian openness and kindness to outsiders uh, fleeing oppression. Uh, they documented a, 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 a very sorry record uh, of Canada being one of the most exclusionary policies of any country in the world where Jews sought refuge in the Nazi period, which was... 1933, and even afterwards, after the war, uh, we learned from them that the United States accepted 200,000 Jews between 1933 and 45. Britain was 70,000, Argentina 50,000, other countries down the line. 
Canada led in 5,000 Jews total. And um, according to them, it was only after 1948 that began to accept a significant number of Jewish refugees. So the number of 5,000 is really paltry when you consider it might have been between um, 1933 and 1945. So um, it didn't put Canada in a very good light, but it really had very real world consequences, the book. And uh, it seems everyone read it and not too many people read Canadian histories and not too many people read Canadian Jewish histories. But this was this was on everyone's shelf. One very interesting thing about watching the funeral and, and listening to his family you know, he had a public persona because he was president of Canadian Jewish Congress. Mm-hmm. He was a historian. He was uh, always a, sort of a public figure, as was his wife in her up and coming career in the legal system. But at home, you know, he was, uh, you could just picture the professor's house, mm-hmm. papers on every table, and he had different things going on. He had the book called Code of Many Colors. He had mm-hmm. labor history books. He wrote about uh, J.B. Sal- J.D. Salzburg. Um, and and his kids were say that there was literally no table in the house that wasn't covered with his you know artifacts and papers that he was yeah. always writing something. Uh, I really liked the fact that the kids talked about how he was a great sports fan and basically he hated going to all these parties and he was more happy to be home watching sure. sports than to be at all these hoity-toity parties. It and was a, lovely and a very doting parent. Apparently, there was a saying in his house that the kids had two mothers and only one of them had a beard. <laughs> so there you go. So many people know none is too many, but in terms of what impact it has on our community today, uh, what is his legacy? Well, his legacy was best seen even before the book was published. There was a rough draft of it floating around, around 1979. Um, it, it was, as I say, a rough draft, almost in finished form. But in any event, Joe Clark was elected prime minister. At the same time, people might remember the Vietnamese boat people, thousands, thousands of people, fleeing the communist regime in Vietnam in these most rickety boats that were so easily swamped and sunk. Uh, They were washing up all over the place, including Canada. Um, Somebody had the, Irving Abella and and Harold Troper had the idea to send the rough draft of a book to the Ministry of Immigration. It landed on the desk of a deputy minister who showed it to a man named Ron Atke, who was in the Ministry of Immigration. Mm -hmm. And basically the message was, smacked it down on his desk so the story was and said, don't be this guy. Um, The authors included a note, and the note said, we hope Canada will not be found wanting in this refugee crisis the way it was in the last one. This touched Ron Atke deeply because he read the book and he said, no, this isn't going to be me. Uh, As he put it, it, the, the, the book stiffened my resolve to be bold. And what happened was the initial goal was 8,000 people a year. And by the end of 1980, it was 50,000. So obviously, this had some sort of effect on the, on the new government of Joe Clark. You can only realize what it means to be locked up in a camp with guards and barbed wire and electricity and all that sort of thing. So um, I can never forget this. So speak, speaking about the Holocaust, you need to talk about Max Eisen because he was in a film called The Accountant of Auschwitz, where they uh, talked about the prosecution of a Nazi war criminal, uh, Oscar uh, Groening, who was uh, an accountant at Auschwitz camp and um, was prosecuted and found guilty at age 96 or something. And he went to Germany with some other Toronto survivors to testify. So first of all, I'm sure you knew Max Eisen as well, or you I, uh, covered him. I knew him and covered him. I, I didn't know him particularly well. Um, 
but you know he was he was one of the best uh, Holocaust educators around and a wonderful speaker, very articulate. Um, and kids kids naturally gravitated to him. They liked him. They wanted to hear him. Um, Max wrote, as I reviewed it, uh, my first line in my review of Max's book was, "All memoirs of Holocaust survivors deserve to be read. Only some are better than others." And Max's was absolutely remarkable. It's one of those books that give yourself time, go to the bathroom before because you're not putting it down. It's called By Chance Alone, A Remarkable True Story. And it really made waves. It was shortlisted, as we know, for the RBC Taylor Prize. And it won the 2019 CBC's Canada Reads. And it really is a no-holds-barred, he really doesn't pull his punch. Uh, Don't read it on a full stomach. It's not for the faint of heart, but do read it because it is a absolutely hard-hitting, remarkable uh, book that just, as I say, it, it doesn't look away. Why do you think he was so able to connect with kids in, in the way he spoke? He was a small man with a beautifully melodious, deep voice. Yeah. How did it... Because, you know, they're, they're three I, or four generations away from this. Yeah. I, I think because kids are suckers for the truth. And Max told the truth. He was, it was unvarnished. He didn't couch it in terms. He didn't say we were, you know, we were, people were killed. He said people were murdered. People's heads were crushed in. People were stomped to death. I was thrown in a ditch and left to die. These are words anybody can understand. And they had a, they had a bit of a shock value, but kids appreciated being spoken to uh, in this way. And, and it wasn't just you know, we have to speak out against racism. It wasn't just that because they've heard this before. When Max spoke, people listened because he was just so direct and he didn't believe in any kind of dissembling at all. He was a natural born teacher and a natural born storyteller. He was apparently, you know, during the funeral, we learned that he'd been sick for a year. He was told, you know, he was going to go meet his maker. He, he knew that at the end. And yet he was still working on a new book, which is a kid's book mm. of yeah, his, yeah. a kid's version of his book oh with illustrators and everything with um, uh, a publisher uh, up until quite maybe a week or two before he died. Uh, so the, the, we're looking forward to seeing what will come of that. I'm sure it will be super uh, well fly off the shelves just as his, his own book did. Yeah. But even right up into the end, he had so much work to do. He he wasn't ready to was rest on his laurels. Always you know? working, always. He got several honorary doctorates, all kinds of... He got the key to the city of Vaughan. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time I ever saw Max not get upset, but his voice modulated above the usual uh, pleasant tones. He, he, I asked him point blank when he was being interviewed. Uh, you forget, people don't know this, but a prosecutor, the prosecutor of Oscar Graining came to Toronto several years ago to interview people who were uh, what are called co-plaintiffs under German law. These are people who were there, never have met Oscar Graining, but it didn't matter. They were there to describe what daily life was like in Auschwitz. Um, and there were three survivors from Toronto who participated in these tapings and these interviews. One of them was uh, Max. Afterwards, I asked him, he was terrific, of course, and that's why he was chosen to testify. I asked him, I said, Max, you're, this guy is going to be sitting right across from you at the table. You're going to be in the witness stand uh, and he's going to be sitting right in front of you. If you had to, if you wanted to, what would you tell him? And Max got a little upset and he said, how could you do it? How could you sit in your office and tally up not just money, but the Jews' belongings, 
their gold, their silver, the gold from their teeth, uh, children's toys, everything that was taken, it was up to you to divide between the valuable and the less valuable. How could you do it? And then he went back to being approachable Max. Well, that's the point of this film is um, somebody in that film, if you've ever seen the account of Auschwitz, one of the survivors forgives Oscar Groening. Mm. And that was super controversial. Yes. But Max did not, could not, would not. No. I, I, he can move on, but he could never forgive. That's what he said. Well, Lisk, he, he put his talents to good use. He wanted people who were perpetrators to be prosecuted until the very last drop. Yeah, of course. And, and those who sweet. helped him, like Johnny Stevens, the right. black, black uh, the tank driver, African-American tank driver, you know, couldn't say enough, couldn't do enough for that. But here's the interesting family. final twist about Max and, and Oscar Graining. I also asked Max, what would you like Oscar Graining to be? He'll probably be sentenced, otherwise he wouldn't have gone through all this. What would an appropriate sentence be? Oscar Graining was then in his late 80s or early 90s. Uh, he's not going to go to jail. What are they going to do? And Max said, well, <clears throat> I'd be happy if he was sentenced to speak to kids for the rest of his life. Just go out there, speak to elementary school students, university students. Instead, Oscar Graining got a jail term. <laughs> so they were serious. They did sentence him to, I think it was four years. And so... I think Max was a little bit surprised by that. Hmm, I hadn't heard that before. That's actually really, really interesting. Because that would have done... He actually did come out before the whole court case, from what I remember hearing about this Oscar Groning, to say the Holocaust did happen, and he was like trying to shush the Holocaust deniers in Germany. And this is how they, he came to notice of the prosecutors in Germany. He was under the radar for all his life. And then he spoke out. And then because they heard him say that the Holocaust happened, he got punished. It's kind of like, uh, you know... I hadn't heard that. Yeah, no, that's what happened. He okay. he didn't back down. He did apologize, but he got, I guess, as the spokesperson and right. the scapegoat for everybody, right? Well, uh, Max lived a long and very, very fulfilling life. He did, and his legacy is, is huge. If uh, in my own lifetime, if I think where, where we were and where we are, both as a Jewish people, as a society, or as Canada, as a Jewish state or whatever, uh, there is uh, much room for optimism. And One hope. of the community's uh, major losses this summer has been, of course, the loss of Holy Blossom Rabbi Dov Marmer, uh, who died in Israel. I did not know him, but of course I read his columns uh, all the time in the Canadian Jewish News, as did hundreds of people, thousands of people, I'm sure. Yeah, another very approachable man. Uh, anytime I called, he would speak to me for long or for short. Um, you know, he had big shoes to fill. He, he, uh, he came after Gunther Plout, and uh, he filled them admirably. He was a very respected scholar. He was an activist, um, known for a certain speaking style and, and for being very on time about everything. Interesting life. Um, he had an accent that came from nowhere, according to his daughter. But he was born in Poland, uh, and then he, he was 87 when he died. That... The family with him went to Siberia, Uzbekistan, back to Poland. Uh, he spoke at survivor conferences, and he considered himself one, and he was considered one. Of course, he did um, a lot of interesting things at Holy Blossom. For people who may not know or are not from Toronto, Holy Blossom is a very large reform congregation in Toronto. It's Canada's largest reform temple. Uh, under Rabbi Marmer's guidance, Holy Blossom established the Out of the Cold program which was controversial at first. It wasn't welcome. People were kind of uh, wary of having the homeless sleep right in the temple, on the floors or on cots or wherever they could. 
but he welcomed them, and now it's uh, Holy Blossom is a point of pride. Uh, or rather, the Out of the Cold program is a point of pride for Holy Blossom. In a more controversial vein, in the early 80s, when the AIDS epidemic was raging, um, Rabbi Marmer and a team of women at Holy Blossom got to work. They established support networks for people living or dying of AIDS and for their loved ones. Uh, they raised funds for medical care, funeral costs, and so on, and for um, a very famous uh, Third Seder, which had its own Haggadah. And so, you know, people, he had a, he had a little saying, um, uh, you thought you were getting an English gentleman, but what you got was a Polish Jew, which <laughs> he got both. That's, that's, was, I'm, I'm, that's what I like to remember him by. And it was also quite an ardent Zionist. The first job I had was as a host in a Chinese restaurant uh, that was in the exhibition. I figured out a long time ago that if you're gonna practice law, uh, that dazzle was good, but it was not nearly enough. Now I know we're running out of time, but we must give honorable mention to Clayton Ruby, a big giant in the legal field in Canada, Jewish lawyer uh, for the downtrodden, the oppressed, uh, the marginalized, big cases. Yeah, a giant of the uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Bar um, had all kinds of high-profile cases, including uh, Henry Morgenthaler, which I have a feeling he represented with, uh, alongside um, Morris Manning. But um, uh, he represented uh, Guy Paul Morin, who was falsely accused of murder, as we know. Uh, also a woman named Michelle Douglas, um, uh, who was a gay soldier and uh, court of appeal, not the court of appeal, the federal court, uh, reversed that and ordered basically the armed forces to end its discriminatory policy against LGBTQ folks in the armed forces. So, uh, yeah, he had, he also represented Sven Robinson in a very high profile case, um, in the death of, uh, in this medically assisted death of Sue Rodriguez. Sue Rodriguez and in sure. the end, uh, Robinson was in charge in the case. So Robinson is a former member, of parliament. former member of parliament, right? So, um, yeah, interesting man, very committed to social justice and to civil liberties causes. Clayton Ruby was loudly and proudly on the left, but what he could not abide uh, was the left's constant attacks on Israel. And he really found that uh, a horrible double standard. And he called them out on it in a very, very good article in the Globe and Mail several years ago. He said that um, leftists have a right and an obligation to denounce anti-Semitism that includes the debate about Israel and Palestine. He said he rejected as anti-Semitic the shameful double standard applied only to Israel. We call on the Canadian left as a whole to reject this double standard as well. So he could be on the left and still support Israel. I put the past behind me. I have to work and see what I can do for myself. And I work hard. I learn, I study, and I bring my, myself up. And I see my whole tragic story is a successful story. Now, uh, we do have to mention several other people. We've had all guys on today, so we need to do uh, a mention, an honorable mention. Uh, we lost, the community lost, a uh, Hungarian Holocaust speaker, Holocaust survivor in Montreal. These are all Montrealers now from the next couple. Uh, Leslie Vertez. Yeah. Um, I hope I said it right. Well, I'll say it Hungarian style, and that was Leslie Vertes, or if you really want to get Hungarian, Vertes Latsi, who was a remarkable man, 97, I believe. And um, 
followed his his lifespan sort of followed a, a standard one for Hungarian Jewish men. Um, he was uh, in a forced labor battalion, um, but then he escaped from the forced labor battalion, went into hiding, and had several several hair raising near misses. Uh, survived the war until the Soviet liberation in January of 1945. Thought he was in the clear. Instead, he was deported to a Soviet prisoner of war camp in Ukraine, where he almost died several times. Didn't come back to Hungary until January of 1947. And that's really when his life began. And lastly, of course, Mr. Hollywood North, Mel Hoppenheim, also a Montrealer, passed away. We have an obit as well in the, in the cjn.ca. And Mel Hoppenheim was basically the impresario and film producer and movie mogul. But he almost wasn't. He almost was in the meat business. He was in the meat business. But here's, here's the thing about him. And what happened was many, many years ago, he found himself on a shoot of a commercial near Mont-Tremblant. And he was speaking to some of the production people who lamented the fact that all their equipment had to come from the United States. Nothing was available in Canada. And of course, the proverbial light bulb went off over his head. Uh, long story short, he ended up uh, making available to shoots in Canada everything people needed in terms of equipment, cameras, dollies, the whole thing. And he built up something called uh, Mel's Cité de Cinéma into the largest provider of services to film and TV in the country. He was known as, as you said, Mr. Hollywood North. He attracted a lot of U.S. foreign foreign investment. And um, very, very generous philanthropist, Jewish General Hospital, Siegel Center for the Performing Arts, uh, the Israeli Film Festival, the list went on, and an order of Canada to boot. So, Honorable mention. And we have three just to say, uh, we send our condolences out, of course, to two Second World War veterans. I knew both of them. I've written about them. We've written about them in the CJN. Norman Cash passed away at the age of 103 in Toronto. He was on the commercials for Remembrance Day that Bell Canada filmed with this little girl that met him selling poppies. He used to sell poppies all the time. And Mickey Heller passed away. He uh, was a, uh, uh, a Second World War RCAF a veteran. And uh, he's the subject of uh, several articles by his uh, grandson, Aaron Heller, who's a former uh, Associated Press and New York Times writer, uh, about his role with the Machalniks uh, in 1948 um, and the, the Jews who served in the Second World War and then went over to Israel to help Israel during the War of Independence. So Mickey Heller passed away. He just turned 100, and, um, and you can read about him in the CJN as well. And Nick Nemiroff comedian passed away again all this is on our website so that's what jewish canada sounds like for this episode of the cjn daily's deadbeat sponsored by metropia integrity community quality and customer care ron thanks so much again for all your insights a great conversation Pleasure. and we're going to ask the audience please send us in your suggestions for our next episode for who we should give honorable mention to and also if you have a better name than we have come up with. Here's a couple that our producer suggested. What do you think of the Jewish goodbye? Yay, nay. How about unveiled? Mm-hmm. That's okay. And Chevrei Kadisha. That's clever, but it's hard to say. So again, thanks so much for listening on the CJN Daily. Special thanks to Barry Shanebaum for the audio of the late Rabbi Doe Marmer and to Toronto Life Magazine for Clayton Ruby's clip and to the Azrieli Foundation for Leslie Vertesh. Mm-hmm.